Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, and I'm here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and you're listening to our ongoing series through the book of Isaiah, where we go chapter by chapter, and I break down a lot of these complex themes and ideas in the prophetic books. It's been really challenging because a lot of the prophetic books use a structure that I would say is very different for what we do today. In writing and communication, we like to make everything as clear as possible and try and leave no stone unturned when we make and uh, communicate. Um, But in the time period that um, these Israelites and um, people that lived in Jerusalem lived, uh, a lot of the way that they communicated was often through imagery and through ideas and themes, more so than clear and concise words and writing. And so it becomes really difficult at times when we're reading it um, you know, 3,000 years later, or two and a half, uh, 2,500 years later, because we have this sense in which um, it's just completely foreign to us, and we have to do a lot of work with our uh, mind to really begin to understand a lot of these topics. And this is definitely the case here in uh, this chapter. Um, a lot of the themes here uh, have double and sometimes even triple meanings, um, and so a lot of it is trying to figure out what are the meanings and then um, not accepting that one meaning is any more important than a different meaning, um, but using and thinking about all three separate meanings simultaneously together. And that'll be a big uh, big jump for you probably, but I'll try and break down all the meanings as best as I can, and uh, hopefully you'll get the, get the sense of what's going on here and how it's being used. Um, and you'll see how beautiful it really is, how interwoven all of these different ideas are, and how you can take the same image and apply it to different things. Specifically, we'll be talking about Babylon a lot today. There's a lot of different... Um, thoughts about Babylon um, that have happened throughout most of the church period. And so, um, yeah, Babylon will be uh, one of those few ideas that has multiple meanings to it. And uh, I'm going to try and break it down as much as I can. Um, If you ever tend to uh, flip towards the back of your Bible, towards the book of Revelation, I know that's a confusing book. But if you do, a lot of what's said here in uh, Isaiah 14 will be really useful. in a reading of Revelation, so just keep your eye on that too. Is that um, most of the most of the prophetic books, in fact, are really helpful for understanding the Book of Revelation. So we're going to jump into this, and uh, yeah, strap in. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob 
once again he will choose Israel and will settle them in in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon go over you and say, Now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. The realm of the dead below is astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations, they will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are, and you have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. How you have fallen from the heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the mount Saphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial. For you have destroyed your land and and killed your people. Let the offspring of the wicked never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his children for the sins of their ancestors. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. 
This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord has all has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? This prophecy came in the year King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting, venomous serpent. The poorest of the poor will find pasture, and the needy will lie down in safety. But your root I will destroy by famine. It will slay your survivors. Wail, you gate. How, you city. Melt away, all you Philistines. A cloud of smoke comes from the north, and there is not a strangler in its ranks. What answer shall be given to the envoys of that nation? The Lord has established Zion, and in her his afflicted people will find refuge. All right, so this is a long chapter um, after a couple of shorter chapters, and uh, we're getting into some really interesting things here with this chapter. Um, This is one of the more beautiful chapters in the entire book of Isaiah, honestly, and uh, there's a couple of things to talk about. Um, One of the first things you'll notice is that um, in starting in verse one, really, um, you see a shift again to uh, Judah and uh, Israel being um, valued and God saying that he's going to bring them back um, and settle uh, them again in their own land. And what is particularly of interest to me is um, that foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. And uh, this is a theme in all of the book of Isaiah is that it's not just that God is going to bless Judah and Israel, but once he's returned them all to their land after they They've been punished. Um, they will also bring joy and happiness to every other nation that's around them, um, and all of these foreigners will also get to partake in all of the wonderful things that God brings to the people of Judah and Israel. Um, and this is something that I think people missed um, that were um, reading their Old Testament in the first century, uh, specifically a lot of the Pharisees in Jesus's time. Uh, and many men uh, and women of that time, just outside of that, they all had this sense in which it was um, Jews first and Gentiles second. And um, a lot of Isaiah seems to um, defy that in many ways. It seems to show that um, a lot of these foreigners and things will be united um, with Jacob and um, that it's not just about Israel and Judah, but it's also about these foreigners becoming blessed. Um, There is definitely a sense in which... um, uh, it does seem as if the uniting um, could be argued that they become Jews as well, um, but uh, I personally don't read it that way. I read this as um, the foreigners uh, having their same identity and just living in the city of uh, Jerusalem and uh, partaking. And I think as Christians today, we can kind of see the fruits of that in that um Many of us are not natively Jews, but we still partake in um, communion with Christ, and uh, we have this sense in which a lot of uh, our history and our relationship with God is primarily because of the relationship with Israel and Judah. So um, that's just something to point out is that um, uh, a lot of this prophecy here is come to come to fruition in our time today um, through us. Um, another thing I'll point out is that... Um, A lot of the uh, point of this entire chapter is to show that the most powerful 
people in the land are not anywhere close to what God is and that God will usurp them and throw them into a place that's very pathetic and weak and um, will never, uh, they'll never get to have that power again. And that's really the big call of this um, entire chapter, specifically focusing on Babylon. And again, um, if you listen to the last episode where I talked about Babylon a lot, you might be a little confused as to why um, it talks about Babylon, but then at the very end of the chapter, it then switches uh, to talking about Assyria. And uh, this is where I'll probably start to talk a little bit about the theme of Babylon overall and in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. Babylon uh, starts and is first named in Genesis chapter 11, where um, they build this entire incredible tower um, that's called the Tower of Babel. And in that tower, um, it's supposed to represent all of human effort and uh, ingenuity, really, and power and strength being put into some huge monument like this. And uh, in the story, it's uh, told that the people did this because they wanted to reach the heavens and become gods themselves. Um, And so they built this incredible tower to really ascend to godhood, so to speak. And because of that, God is very furious with all of them and um, confuses their languages as a result. And what's really interesting is that Babylon really its name comes out of that um, in the Hebrew, and it really means uh, confused or uh, a babble even, you know, a babble of speech. And um, this becomes useful uh, later on for the Hebrew writers when they relate um, the actual city of Babylon that ends up forming well after this tower was formed. Uh, And when they talk about the city of Babylon, they're always calling back to this Genesis 11 story where um, they tried to build this Tower of Babel, and uh, they call this city Babylon because it's in many ways uh, this uh, representation of human strength and ingenuity again. It's this powerful city um, that is at the forefront of all of society and represents the best of humanity in many ways, and it has the one of the biggest technological advances of its time period as well. And so a lot of this uh, is a big pride point for humanity is the city. And yet the Hebrew writers use that um, relation to the biggest pride point of Genesis 11 was also the Tower of Babel, and they relate these two themes together. And they think of Babylon not just as a city that actually exists in the world, but also as a sort of a metaphor of sorts for Um, human progress, human ingenuity, human superiority, and it becomes the theme of human pride even. And that's really where the book of Revelation takes over, um, is it really explores the theme of Babylon being this city of pride in many ways, and being this kind of lofty city, being the city of um, all of this human ingenuity and progress um, and technology that forgets that, you know, it really is... um, small and minor in comparison to God. And in Isaiah 14, that's what you see here with Babylon a lot, um, is this sort of image of Babylon being this. And I think that we're meant to relate the story of Babylon to the story of Assyria in the chapters before and see that Assyria is claiming a Babylon status, is claiming to be the most um, 
uh, influential nation is claiming to be the superior kingdom. Um, and so in many ways, Assyria can be Babylon. But at the same time, Babylon also existed in this time period. And so um, I think Isaiah is also kind of calling out Babylon itself um, and the city of Babylon. And so that's where it gets really confusing is that um, the name Babylon can be imported onto many different cities that are claiming this human superiority, this technologically advanced society, um, and yet at the same time can also mean a city that existed uh, close to um, the Black Sea and the Persian Gulf. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's it, that's where uh, Hebrew readings get difficult, is that it's not an either or, but a both and. Um, and we can get really confused if we don't uh, think about it in, in that kind of dual form, as opposed to an either or. So hopefully that makes sense to you as to why he talks all about Babylon and then at the very end then jumps into Assyria. Um, but primarily, I do think that he's addressing the city of Babylon. I think that he's talking about the actual physical place of Babylon in this uh, section. And then when he gets to the end, I think he's taking the metaphorical representation and the themes of Babylon and applying them to Assyria to really meld this whole chapter together with everything that's come before it. So hopefully that uh, explains a little bit of the context of the chapter overall. Another thing I'll point out, though, is that um, Babylon, uh, in uh, really the times of the Romans and uh, afterwards in Greek Greek times, Babylon took on another meaning, a third meaning, um, for a lot of early Christian interpreters, um, especially with uh, this uh, last little bit here where it talks about the morning star in verse 12. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. So you might be uh, curious why he's called, why Babylon's called the morning star. Uh, the morning star in their time was the sun. Um, it was the star that uh, hung in the morning, um, and it was the, uh, you know, the sun is a star, and it was what gave light to pretty much everything on earth. And... Um, uh, I think I talked about in the last episode how darkness was such an a, um, awful thing for any other type of nation that believed in the sun um, as a god itself. Um, and oftentimes these people would believe that their kings were also gods and representatives of the, the god that they worshipped. So if Babylon worshipped the sun, for instance, their king would be uh, also tied to that god in a way, and they believed he was almost the sun god as well, and he was sort of the physical representation of the sun god. So if darkness were to fall and come, that would shout not just their god, but also their king as well. And when you see here this falling of the morning star, you see both a kind of a comparison of the fall of the king of Babylon, as well as the fall of the star itself, of their god, of the fall of this. But in the Greek times and in the Roman times, they took this and uh, they began to apply it to the um, themes in Revelation, where it talks about Satan being cast down from uh, the heavens. And um, they noticed the similarities between Isaiah and uh, the 
uh, passage in Revelation where it talks about Satan being cast down. And they began to think of the morning star as being um, a reference also to Satan, as not just Babylon, but also to Satan. And what became really interesting is they began to translate a morning star into its uh, Latin form, which uh, is Lucius. Um, and when Lucius... Uh, got translated several times into English, um, it became known as Lucifer. And that is the, this is actually where we get the term Lucifer for the name of Satan. Um, it never comes up in the Hebrew Greek text. It's really just a Greek um, uh, or a English translation of a Latin word for morning star. Um, and personally, I don't really think that Satan's ever really called Lucifer. I think that's just a translation thing um, where we've started to interpret morning stars meaning Satan. Um, and that's totally up for grabs. I think that there are a lot of themes like that that work their way un kind of under the scenes of the text. Um, and so I do think that morning star can have reference to that revelation passage and we can be thinking about the theme of that. But I don't think that you can go around thinking that Satan's real name is Lucifer because I think that was just a Latin uh, translation of Morning Star um, that then got put into English. So don't go around saying Lucifer. Go around saying uh, saying Satan or um, the devil um, because those are the two names that do get used the most in the Hebrew and uh, Greek texts. So yeah, um, another thing I'll point out is. Um, by the time uh, we get into what I think is the most interesting part of this passage is that um, this uh, morning star, this king, this god is going to be thrust into um, the land of the dead. And uh, what's really interesting about Old Testament passages about the afterlife, really, is that they're very different from New Testament texts about afterlife. Um, you can tell that uh, a lot of their ideas about um, the afterlife is that everyone goes down to this pit. Um, this pit is in uh, um, Hebrew, it's translated as Sheol. And um, in in Sheol, um, they really just imagine that there's this place that people go to um, that's really underground where they exist and can talk to one another. And that's kind of the metaphor here, as you see here, is that there's a lot of dead kings and people. Um, uh, people in this pit in Sheol um, that uh, see the king of Babylon finally come and they're like, why are you here? We never thought you'd be here because you're so powerful and in such command and look how far you've fallen now. And uh, this is a huge theme for the book of uh, many of the books of the Old Testament is that death is the ultimate trump card to the powers of the natural world um, and that as no matter how powerful a king of Babylon might be no matter how powerful anyone might be death ultimately claims them and uh, when death claims them they are brought to their lowest and weakest point and that's really a big powerful thing of Isaiah overall is that um, any of these people are going to get death and eventually they'll be brought down but you do notice a difference between how this king of Babylon is treated as opposed to every other king. The other kings are valued and they're still in their tombs and in this pit. Um, but uh, this king is rejected and he's uh, like a rejected branch. Remember the idea of uh, 
branched from David's, you know, uh, Jesse's stump and branch being related to um, this remnant that's going to come in Israel. Well, this is the opposite of that type of branch, which is a branch that's chosen by God. This is a branch that's rejected by God and he's abandoned. And that's the image that we're seeing here in this passage um, is just a king that's um, just covered with maggots and lying um, underground and this this beautiful imagery of what death is like and you might be asking well where's the fire where is hell and all of this stuff and you really don't see that there's not really any uh, type of imagery of that at all in this bit here and uh, I'm not really sure overall why that's the case um, we can see a lot of the um, metaphors about death being carried over into the New Testament. And so that definitely uh, applies a little bit. But uh, overall, I think that what we have here is just depictions of what they imagined the afterlife to be like um, without really a full uh, understanding of it yet. Um, and so they were describing the afterlife as best they could with the understanding that they had and that as the Bible progresses we get further and further revelation of what that's going to be like and we get a bigger understanding of what that's going to be like but for right now they really just imagined it as this pit that everyone goes to after they die um, the shield um, and that's about it so the last thing I'll talk about is that it kind of switches abruptly after all of this um, in uh, chapter, in, sorry, in verse 24, where it says, The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, it will be, and as I have purposed, it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land, on my mountain I will trample him, his yoke will be taken from my people, and his burden removed from their shoulders. Um, so obviously we have a switch from Babylon to Assyria here, and this really only lasts for like four verses. Um, I've already talked about how Babylon can mean something to the Caesarean bit here, so I won't go into it, but I just wanted to point out where the where the um, uh, break happens and where a new section begins. And then the final section is switching again to the Philistines, and this part here um, is calling them out. The Philistines are a really interesting group, too, because they were never really meant to uh, exist past the time of um, the nation of Israel uh landing in the land of Canaan. Um, when Joshua and all of them uh, go into the land of Canaan for the first time, the Lord gives them a specific decree to wipe out every nation that's there. They're not to leave a single person alive. Um, and they don't do that. Um, they uh, oftentimes intermarry with a lot of these nations, or they're too powerful, and so they don't fight at all. Um, they don't rely on the Lord to win their battles. They just kind of like commingle, as it were. And as a result, um, they're led astray by a lot of the gods. And the Philistines are probably the biggest nation that gives uh, Judah and Israel the most trouble um, as a result. They were um, kind of a seafaring nation. They uh, existed along the banks of the Mediterranean. And because they were a seafaring nation, they were able to get a lot of um, ore and minerals and things that allowed them to have advanced technological um, weapons and things of that nature that really uh, hampered uh, the people of Israel that didn't have as much of that. And <laughs> it's really interesting, but uh, there's a passage in, I believe it's in 1 Samuel, where uh, the it's kind of depicted as the Philistines have all the swords and weapons, and Israel has only like 
farming tools. And so it's really hard for Israel to fight against the Philistines because they're just way more technologically advanced. But here you see this ending uh, part for the Philistines where they finally get what was due to them. And they think that they've won. They think that they've finally gotten rid of the thorn in their side, which has been Israel and Judah. And um, it's going to be like a snake that will spring up as a viper, um, a venomous serpent. And um, you see how it ends with this uh, cry for mourning um, that the Philistines should take up because they're about to get this cloud of smoke from the north. Um, And uh, this could be um, Babylon again um, coming from the north or Assyria coming. Um, We don't really know. It's not really referenced as to what who what nation is going to punish the Philistines. Um, But you can see obviously here is that um, God is calling out this group of people and saying, hey, I'm, I'm coming for you too. So, yep, uh, that's really the end of chapter 14, and uh, I will be back again next week with chapter 15. Thanks, everybody.